chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. 39 through 52 this morning, looking at Jesus the Disciple, uh, which might sound like an interesting or strange title to you, uh, but I think you're going to see it today as we look through this story of, this unique story in the life of Christ uh, in his early years. So, uh, Luke 2, 39 through 52 is where we're going to land. So, I I don't think it's any secret at this point uh, to our church that I'm, I'm a big basketball fan. Uh, I, I developed a love for basketball when I was growing up, uh, watching the greatest player of all time, uh, Michael Jordan, um, not to be debated, and, uh, but nonetheless, so that kind of grew my life, but then when he retired, I was like, I'm kind of done with the NBA, and so I started watching college hoops a lot more, and it's kind of all that, and I was out of it for a long time, and then just the last several years ago, um, I got introduced to a gentleman named Mr. Steph Curry, uh, who kind of brought me back to a love of NBA basketball. Um, and this guy is just uh, a shooting icon. Um, he is considered the greatest shooter of all time in the NBA, maybe one of the greatest, greatest players of all time. Uh, he has uh, the most career three-pointers ever made at over 3,500. Um, he has the highest career free throw percentage at 91%. And he has the uh, three-point record for a single season at 402, which is almost double the previous record. Um, and he's NBA champ, NBA MVP several times, um, just lights out. But if you know anything about his story, he did not start as this famed basketball player. He was actually pretty short, pretty scrawny when he was coming up. He got overlooked a lot on basketball teams. He did not get um, pulled in by a major D1 team uh, for basketball in college. Finally got drafted by the Warriors. Um, and then from there started to develop into this massive player and, you know, as they say history goes on from there. But, but what really strikes me about Curry is how he got from where he was to where he is now. And his discipline, his, his commitment to growing, his dedication to that. And there was an interview with his coach, Steve Kerr, a little bit back, and they were asking him about Curry and how he has developed into such this great player. And here's what Steve Kerr said about him. He said, it's just the consistency of his routine. It's like a metronome. I mean, every day it's the exact same thing. He's in the training room, he's in the weight room, he's on the court, it's clockwork. But there's also a sense of joy and energy within that work. He enjoys it so much, he loves the process. And I think that's one of the things that ties all great athletes together. Like I'm talking about superstar athletes, he said. He went on and he said, you know, the the Roger Federer's of the world or the Steph Curry's of the world, there's a routine that is not only super disciplined, but it's really enjoyed each day. There's a passion that comes with it, and that sustains it over time. And when you love something like those guys do, you work at it, you get better, and you just keep going. It's that combination. It's that combination of discipline and joy that has turned Steph Curry into an exemplary player. And it's that same combination that is necessary for us to grow as exemplary disciples of Christ. It has to be both discipline to follow God and to follow his word and a joy in the love and worship of who he is. And when those two things come together, we see discipleship really grow and thrive. And we're going to see that here in the picture of Christ's childhood today from Luke chapter 2, that discipleship doesn't happen without joy and discipline. 
you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to grow in discipleship, it doesn't happen without these two things, joy and discipline. And we're going to see both evident today in this picture together, okay? So let's dive into the scriptures. Look at verse 39. It starts off like this. It says, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that's they being Jesus' parents, right? They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So today we're going to do a little bit different. I'm just going to walk through this whole story. And then we're going to, at the end we're going to tag on um, some lessons that we can learn from Christ from uh, this, this story as well. So first part is just a day in the life of Jesus. All right? And notice Jesus, uh, or Luke starts off here and he says the child grew. And this is kind of Luke's summary statement right, to describe all of Jesus' childhood that he grew and that he developed like all children do, right? We don't have a whole lot of information about it. It's only this one story. But this simple statement affirms us and reminds us that Jesus, although he was God, he was also 100% man, right? He was a human just like us. He, he lived a full human experience, including normal childhood development. He grew strong physically, it tells us says that he grew wise intellectually, and he grew in favor with God spiritually. And then Luke, Luke proceeds to give us one specific story as an example to kind of highlight what that development was like for Jesus here with this story. So he goes on with the story. He says his parents went to Jerusalem for Passover. So a little bit of historical background there. This was actually required for all Jewish males every year. All, right, all Jewish males were supposed to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Um, however, because of the diaspora, because the Jews were kind of spread out over these large sections of land now, a lot of them would not go every year, right? Because it was just so far, and it was so hard, and it was expensive. But Joseph and Mary were devout to the Lord, and they would make the trip every year. It says it was their custom to go up every year, right? And this year... Um, they went, and not only did, we also see their, their devotion to the Lord, not just because they went every year, but because Mary went with Joseph every year, right? Normally, it was just the male who was required to go. So for the whole family to go, that was like another step. It also tells us here that they stayed to the end of the feast. That's referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which Passover was just the first couple days of that. The feast was like seven days long, 
And you were only required to go for Passover for a couple days. But they would stay for the entire feast because they wanted to be with the Lord for this special season of worship. And so this is the type of home that Jesus grew up in, right? This is the type of home, that one of the most utmost devotion to God every year, following the law, worshiping the Lord, going above and beyond to show their devotion to God. This is what Jesus grew up in. And now we get to this stage, and it says that he was 12 years old in this story, okay? Which is a really interesting detail because this is the only place in all of Scripture that it tells us Jesus' age. Like, none of the other stories does it ever tell us how old he is when it's happening, only here, right? There's a couple of illusions, like when Herod tried to assassinate Jesus, says that he killed all the boys two years old and under, right? So he was somewhere around two, but it doesn't tell us exactly how old he was at that point. Uh, later on in Luke 3, 23, it's going to tell us um, that as he was starting his ministry, that he was about 30 years of age, but it doesn't tell us exactly how old he was. But here Luke gets really specific and says that he was 12 years old. So why the difference? Why would he highlight that here? Why is that so important for this story? I think there's a couple options. It doesn't tell us exactly, but I think there's a couple options. I think one is it, it shows a passage of time, right? That the last story we have, he was still a baby. He was just getting dedicated in the temple, right? And now we're all the way to 12 years old. And it's showing, hey, there, there was some time that passed here, and, and he had just a normal childhood in his home. And this, this was the next divine moment that they had that was worth recording in scripture right and so there's this passage of time between these experiences i think it could also point to what the jews would call the age of responsibility back during this time when a jewish male would reach age 13 he was then at the age of responsibility meaning that he was now responsible to obey the law of god for himself right that he was no longer underneath kind of the the covering of his parents that he had to do it for himself. And so it was oftentimes said that you need to take your son to these types of feasts and festivals a year or two before they turned 13 so that they would know what was expected of them once they hit that age of responsibility. So this would have been like Jesus' last time before next year, it's on you, brother, right? So, so he's going to make sure that he, he's learned, he's ready to do what's required of him at that age of responsibility. And I think it also shows a relationship here with his parents, right? He's 12 years old, which for us, for us, like, 12 years old is, is not, like, a huge milestone, right? Because we're, like, 12-year-olds, they can barely, like, find their shoes most of the time. But, like, back then, they didn't have adolescence yet, right? That wasn't a cultural thing back then. Like, then, when you were 12, when you hit 13, you were considered a man. You had to start, like, contributing to the family. You started to have to, like, carrying weight. Like, this wasn't just, it wasn't a 12-year-old today, right? And so, what we're about to read about Jesus here with his parents gives us this important lesson that they expected him, that he was right on the, the verge of adulthood. He should be pretty much self-sufficient at this point, right? Like, this is where we're headed um, in his life, okay? So he's 12 years old, and then it says they're in Jerusalem for Passover, for the feast, and that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Whole family leaves, goes back home, Jesus stays behind. But notice, it doesn't say that he was left behind. Right? This wasn't an accident. He stayed behind. This was intentional. Like, he chose this. It wasn't like he, he hit the snooze button too many times and missed his camel that morning. Right? Like, like this, was, this was like he wanted to be in Jerusalem, even though everyone else was leaving. 
The rub was that his parents didn't know. <laughs> like Luke just like very blatantly, like, they just didn't know, right? And so for us as parents today, we're like, well, how does that work? How do you not know that you're like, your oldest son is not with you? Um, well, back then they would travel in large caravans, right? When they were going from city to city because there were a lot of robbers and they were trying, they would try to, you know, take advantage of people. And, and so they would, tra- they would uh, travel in these large groups of family and friends and neighbors for safety and for fellowship. And oftentimes, um, you know, they would even split up. Like the, the men would kind of be traveling in one group and the women would be traveling in a different group. And so Mary and Joseph could have been split up. They could have just assumed like, hey, jo- Jesus is with the other one or whatever, or he's with one of these family members or they're with friends or whatever. So they really didn't think much about it. Again, he's, he's 12 years old, right? At this point, they should be able to trust him and expect him to, to handle this kind of thing and be where he's supposed to be and do all those kind of things. So they just assumed that he was with them as they started to travel. Now, this story about Jesus here in, in Scripture, I've always kind of felt a special connection to Jesus in this story um, because I, I also um, have a, a similar story. I was, I was born as a PK, um, and for those of you who don't know, that's pastor's kid. Um, my, my dad was a pastor, and so that meant that I was, um, it was a huge blessing in my life, right? Like, I was taught the gospel at a young age. I was surrounded by godly people. I had uh, my, got to see my parents serve in ministry early on and just see them pour themselves out, and that planted some seeds in me that God's used over the years in some amazing ways. But there were also some downsides to being a PK. I'm just to be honest with you, right? Like, and one of them was that you basically lived at the church building, right? It was your home away from home. That was your second place. You were there all the time. Um, I knew every single inch of that church building when I was a kid, like all the best places to hide, where you could find snacks when nobody else knew about them, right? Uh, What people would let me get away with stuff that my parents would let me get away with. Like I knew all of that, right? And so I would, because I was there all the time. We'd be the first ones there to arrive. We'd be the last ones to leave most of the time, right? And I would just have hours on end to kill as I waited for my parents to finish whatever, you know, grown-ups do in the, with their time, okay? And so there was one Sunday that they were taking particularly long to finish up church stuff and take me home for lunch. And so um, I decided that, that was a great time to just kind of curl up on one of the pews and get a little power nap. And so after church, on the pew, taking a nap, both my parents load up in their separate cars, leave, and go home only to get home and realize that the other one does not have me. And so now their uh, oldest child is left at the church by themselves, um, and they had to turn around and come back and get me. And thankfully, the pew, I guess, was super comfy because I was still sound asleep when they got there. Uh, no worse for the wear. And so, um, but, but in this situation, like, I, 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 was, I was left behind, right, um, because I was just a five-year-old kid and didn't know any better. Um, but Jesus wasn't left behind, he stayed behind. Now, there is a difference, right? And I think sometimes we can read stories like this, whether it be your story from your childhood or your story as a parent or Jesus' story with his parents. And in our society today, it's, we're oftentimes quick to assign blame. Right? We, feel like we always have to pin mistakes on somebody and make somebody responsible for what happened. And it can be tempting here to label Joseph and Mary as neglectful parents or irresponsible parents or somehow paint them in a bad light. But the Bible never does that. The Bible makes no such claim that they were at fault in any way here or that anything was wrong with anything. It actually holds them up as like model parents, honestly, um, in the scriptures. And so we need to be careful how we read scripture and put our lens on it, sometimes from our culture today. Um, But we have the situation. So they, they finally figure out like, hey, it's been a day. Jesus isn't here, right? 
and they began to search for him. So at the end of the first day, as they traveled, they would eventually stop to sleep for the night, and then all the families would kind of group up and sleep and stay together before they set out the next morning on the rest of the trip. And so that would have been the first time they would have realized, like, oh, hey, Jesus is MIA. <laughs> like, where's he at, right? And so they would have slept that night. They would have got up the next morning. They would have traveled a day's journey back to Jerusalem. And then once they got there, they would have spent the third day searching for him and eventually finding him, it says here, in the temple. So they find Jesus on the third day, sitting in the temple among the teachers. Now, these teachers would have been the top religious teachers in the world for Judaism, right? Like, their assignment was in the temple, right? These were the top guys. And so Jesus here has an opportunity to get some teaching that he maybe can't get anywhere else. So he's sitting there, he's listening, and he's asking questions, it says. Uh, this was normal. Uh, Jewish teaching style during that time was a dialogue. It was a Socratic method, right? Where you would ask questions and they would go back and forth, and that's the way that they would learn. So him asking questions here isn't that he was teaching anyone. He was learning. He was a student asking questions of the teachers so he could glean wisdom and knowledge about God's word. Far better instruction than he could ever receive back in Nazareth. And so he's taking advantage of that. But even as he was asking questions and just listening, it says that all were still amazed at his understanding and his answers. If you do a word study on that word amazed in the book of Luke, he almost always connects it to some divine moment. Some like special connection. And so he's subtly telling us here that God was granting Jesus divine insight into God's word. That there was something supernatural happening here as Jesus was learning and talking and listening. Furthermore, he says even his own parents were astonished. They finally get, they finally see him. And when they first walk in, they see, they they hear him talking with teachers, and they're astonished at what's going on. Which I think is really a mixture of things. I think they're they are surprised probably at his knowledge at this point. Um, I think there's probably some relief, right, at his well-being. Like, okay, okay, he's safe, he's good. Um, and then there's probably some vexation over, like, what has just happened? <laughs> like, how, how did this get to this place? Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure all of you in the room um, are master parents, and you've never lost your children. Um, but but we, we unfortunately have a story, right, like where that was a thing for us one time. And let me just tell you, it is surreal. I remember Eliana was only about two years old, and uh, we were in Walmart shopping, like, in, in the baby section, which is, like, in the very, like, back of the store usually, right? And so we're sitting there, and she's running around. She just learned, you know, to walk a little bit, you know, maybe a year before that. And so she's running around and, and she's hiding in the clothes racks and she's doing all the things like kids do, you know, just having fun. We keep telling like, hey, don't do that. Stay close. We need to be able to see you, all these things. But she's just having too much fun. And so she's running all around. And next thing we know, she's gone. Like we're looking around. We can't find her anywhere. We start yelling up and down the aisles like, where are you, Eliana, Eliana? We're screaming throughout the store. Everybody thinks we're crazy. And all the, all the thoughts start flooding your brain, right? Like, what's happened to her? Somebody grabbed her. Is, is she hurt? Where is she at? And it seemed like hours, probably only minutes, before a lady comes walking up with holding Eliana by the hand. And she said, I, when I heard your voices, I knew that it was a parent frantically looking for their child. She said, does this little one belong to you? We found out that Eliana had run from the back where we were at all the way to the front of the store, made it to the registers before someone found her and brought her back to us. 
And in that moment, I can honestly say we were astonished. Like, how does a two-year-old get all the way to the front of Walmart that quickly? Like, how did you do that? We were relieved that she was safe and sound, and we were angry that she had just done that to us and about gave us a heart attack. I think Mary and Joseph had, had all of those normal human parent emotions in this moment. Right? Like, they're trying to process all of this that's going on, and it doesn't make any sense to them. They're just astonished. And we see it in in Mary's words to Jesus, right? She says, son, why have you treated us so? In other words, how could you do this to us? Right? How could you do this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, she says. Mary's expressing a natural, understandable frustration, anxiety over what's happened. She's not She's not so much chastising Jesus for doing something wrong or sinful, but more just like, hey, like that was really insensitive for you like to let us go through this and not say anything. Like she's just kind of addressing, you know, what has happened in the relationship. And then Luke writes, he says that he, Jesus, said to them. And before we look at his words, this is the first place in Luke and really in all of Scripture that we have any recorded words from Jesus. This is the first thing that Jesus says that's recorded in Scripture anywhere, which makes this a really important statement for what he's about to say, right? He says, why were you looking for me? Which is a rhetorical question, right? In other words, it should have been obvious to you. I don't know why you were so upset. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. Which at first could maybe sound like, like a smart aleck comment, right? Like, I was with my real dad, right? Like, or something like that. Like, <laughs> like he's, that's not what he's doing here. But he is making a point, right? It's just kind of a gentle reminder, like, did, did you forget about my first father? Right? That my first devotion, my first commitment, my first priority is to him, that I must be with him in his house. He's revealing the heart that he has for God the Father. And so we see here already at a young age, Jesus already knew who he was. He already understood that he is the Son of of God, and not just as a position, not just as a title, but as a personal relationship with God the Father. He loved the Father and would give him his whole life to serve him and follow him. And it's really important here also that he calls him my Father. See, a lot of us will say that today, but back then the Jews never said that. They would refer to him as like our Father, as like the nation, or like the Father in heaven. But they would not refer to him personally as like my father. And so for Jesus to call him my father was making a statement about his identity in a way that was different than anybody else. He says, but still Joseph and Mary did not understand what he spoke to them. I think this could possibly be like one of those kind of gut check moments as a parent. I don't know if you've ever had that, like where your kid does something that's like either wrong or just like, you know, out of the ordinary or something crazy, something unexpected, you kind of immediately just kind of jump down their throat about it, right? Like you just kind of like jump to conclusions about what they did and why they did it. You start 
laying into them a little bit. And they're like, oh, I, it, I, it was actually this, or I actually, it was actually because of this reason. And you're like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> right? yeah, I, I didn't think about that. I didn't see that coming. I think Mary and Joseph, they kind of had that like, oh, yeah, that's right. Son of God here. See, Jesus had an understanding that no one else had. Not even his parents. Yes, he was their son. But he was also God's son. And that changed everything. And then, it's really striking here. I think this is a super important lesson for us. Look at the next statement in Scripture. It says, nonetheless, he went with them and was submissive to them. Even though he was God, he still obeyed God's word. He still submitted to his parents as he was instructed to do. Because at the very heart of it, he loved and wanted to honor the Father in every way, including the authority that was put over him. And so he goes with them back to Nazareth and says he continued to increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Which is a very, very similar statement to verse 40 right before this passage, right? So you kind of have these two statements that bookend this story about Jesus, right? That it's all about this, that he was growing in his discipleship. And this is just kind of a snapshot of how he was growing in all these ways. And it's one that we can learn from as disciples as well. So, now let's shift from the story and let's look at discipleship lessons from Jesus. Right? Who better to learn how to be a disciple from than Christ himself in the way that he did it. Right? So, Luke says twice here that Jesus grew. Right? Before the story, after the story, he says Jesus grew, meaning his development was not complete at birth. Right? Although he was 100% God, he was also 100% man. And as a man, or more importantly, as a boy, he had to grow and develop as a follower of God. All of us have to grow and develop as followers of Christ. Right? It doesn't happen instantaneously. It doesn't happen just because we say yes to Jesus or pray the prayer. or get like It's a process of growing in the Lord. Jesus had to do that. We have to do that. Okay? Specifically, it says he grew in three areas, strength or stature, which is physical growth. That's just natural for all humans and kids, right? But secondly, it was wisdom, intellectual growth, as he learned, as he developed, and then favor with God and man, which is spiritual growth. And therefore, because he had to grow in all these areas, he can serve as this perfect example for us. Because the word disciple, we use that word a lot around here, but the word disciple really just means learner. That's the definition of it. It's just a, someone who dis- disciplines themselves to learn and grow in the things of God. Which is what Jesus is doing here in the early years of his life and in his faith. And we need to do the same. So here are three lessons, okay, three th- characteristics of Jesus as a disciple that we can emulate and learn from this morning. Number one. A disciple is hungry for God and his word. A disciple is someone who's hungry for God and for his word. They have a a deep, 
deep desire to know him and to know his words. They're not satisfied with anything less. It's a hunger to know and to worship and to serve him as the almighty God. And we see that in two ways here for Jesus. First, we see it in Jesus' pursuit of God. That he purposely stayed behind in Jerusalem to spend more time in the temple learning from God and learning about God. So we see it in his pursuit of God, and we see it also in his priority of God, right? That as a 12-year-old boy, think about this, as a 12-year-old boy with complete freedom, parents are gone for three days. He could do anything he wanted in Jerusalem in the entire city. And he chose to go and to sit in the temple and learn from the teachers. There was a priority in him that God came first. So how hungry are you for God? When you think about your own discipleship, how hungry are you for God? Are you pursuing him and his word? Are you prioritizing time with him? Are you prioritizing time in studying God's word on a daily basis so you can know him, so you can grow in these things? I want to challenge you this morning as we walk through these questions, like, actually write it down. Right now or this week, actually write down what examples in your life prove that you are pursuing and prioritizing God. Write it down. What are you doing? What actions can you point to that show that you are making God a priority and you are pursuing him? Do you have enough examples to show that you are hungrier for God than for anything else in your life? Disciples are hungry for God and his word. That's the first characteristic. Number two, a disciple is humble before God and his spiritual authorities. Humble before God and the spiritual authorities that he has placed in our lives. A disciple is not prideful or arrogant or argumentative because they're aware of their own sin and their own shortcomings. They know that they need him. They do not think that they have all the answers, but they are teachable. Always looking to grow in their understanding of God and his word. Jesus was teachable. They also recognize that God is their ultimate authority. And that he works through other biblically appointed spiritual authorities in their lives. We all have them. This can include parents. This can include husbands. This can include grandparents, small group leaders, elders, mentors, other disciple makers. People that God has placed in our lives as spiritual authorities to help grow and lead us to Christ. And we never outgrow the need to see and submit to spiritual authorities. Not by our age, not by our maturity, not by our position. Every single one of us needs to be willing to humble ourselves before the Lord and the spiritual authorities he puts in place. Again, we see that here with Christ. First, he's teachable. 
He has a teachable spirit. His desire to learn as he listened, as he asked questions of the religious teachers in the temple, he's sitting there. Again, God in the flesh is sitting and learning, asking questions, being teachable. He accepted his own humanity, that he had much to learn, and he received the instruction with a teachable heart so he could grow in wisdom before the Lord. We also see this in Jesus' submissiveness to his parents and to the Lord. He was submissive. He submits to God. He submits to God's word to obey his parents despite being God himself. Because that is the way of a disciple. A disciple wants to humbly honor and submit to God. Whatever he says. And whatever other authorities he puts in place. How humble are you before God? How teachable are you with God's word? With spiritual authorities in your life? Do you allow his word and his teachers to instruct you? To correct you? To rebuke you? When necessary? Or do you often look to defend yourself? Or justify your actions? Or argue your way out of whatever it is God says? Also, how are you doing at submitting? Not just submitting to God or your version of God. But to all spiritual authorities in your life. Even when you think you are above them or should be above them, do you humbly submit out of obedience to God and to his word? Again, what, what examples can you even come up with? What tangible examples in your life can you write down that show that you are humbling yourself before the Lord? That you're teachable. That you're submissive to Him. Do you have enough examples to prove that you're a humble disciple to the Lord? A disciple is humble before God. And then lastly, number three, a disciple is heartfelt toward God above all else. A disciple is someone who has found the true and living God and now nothing, nothing can eclipse his glory in their life. Their love for him is challenged at times, yes, but unrelenting. Their, their worship of him is flawed but unending. Their commitment to him is tested, but unwavering, because he is the Lord, and they believe that. Their heart is fully set on him above everything and everyone else in the world, and we see this again in Jesus, as he speaks his very first words ever recorded in scripture. The first thing he's going to say is point us to the reality of 
of who our God is. We see that Jesus, he is desperate to know and follow God. When he says, I must be in my Father's house. Jesus says, there's no other option here. This is where I have to be. He was constrained by a love for God that required him to be in the presence of the Lord. He needed God's presence. He needed God's power in his life. He was desperate for it. Are we desperate for God? Also, we see it in his devotion for God. Again, he refers to it as my father's house, right? My father's house. This was no distant, aloof, absent God looking down from the heavens and just smiting people, void of any relationship. That's not the God he was talking about. This was his father, the one that he loved, the one that he cherished, the person of his greatest devotion. He didn't love anyone more than the father. And while Jesus certainly had a connection that he could claim to God that we don't necessarily have, the relationship of God being our Father is no less a reality for us today. Think about Romans 8, 29. Familiar, I'm sure, to some of you. But listen to that last part. I think we oftentimes we get stuck on the first part. We miss the last part. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, to be saved, that's what he's talking about, salvation, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they have the same connection to God as He does. They are sons and daughters of God. He is our Father in every sense of the word. Gracious, perfect, Heavenly Father, which demands our greatest love and devotion. Nothing less. So how heartfelt are you toward God today? How heartfelt are you toward God? Are you more desperate for God than for your spouse? Than for your kids? than your job? Are you more desperate for God than your money or your health? Your legacy? Your image before other people? Are you more desperate for God than even for yourself? Does he have the greatest devotion of your heart? Or is something else stealing it away? What evidence? What evidence can you write down in your life that displays your desperation and your devotion for the Lord? When everything's falling apart, when your life is blowing up, where does your heart go? 
also, when life is great, when it's full of joy and everything is hitting on all cylinders, where does your heart go? It's both. He has to be the greatest devotion in both. How do you know that God has your whole heart? That's what a disciple does. That's who a disciple is. We see in Christ that being a disciple doesn't just happen, right? It requires us to partner with the Holy Spirit and to pursue spiritual growth in all of these ways as He works in us. He works in us to give us a new heart and new desires, but then we have to cultivate and grow that heart by responding with all these things. Hunger, humility, and heartfelt devotion. Then we can grow to be disciples like Jesus. Discipleship doesn't happen without joy and discipline. Joy of the Lord living in us and discipline to do what he's called us to do. So how are you doing this morning? As we start into a new year, how well are you disciplining yourself to grow in Christ? And again, I challenge you this week. I want you to pray. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you how you're doing in these areas. Look for evidence, actual evidence in your life. Build a case of why or why not you are a disciple of Jesus. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you can grow. Where you can do better this year as you follow Christ and grow in Him. At the end of 2024, will God be able to say to you that you have grown in wisdom and in favor with God and man? I want that. I want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. That our church this year, we would grow in wisdom and in favor with God. What a great testimony. Let's seek that. Let's pray for that this year. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for coming to save us, for calling us to be your disciples. And Lord, we want this. We want to grow in wisdom. We want to grow in favor with you this year, even more than ever before. So Lord, we're asking this morning, Lord, teach us. Lead us. Help us to seek after you with hungry and humble hearts. Help us to depend on you and the power of your spirit. Lord, we can't do this alone. Lord, Fill us with your power as we discipline ourselves to follow you. We depend on you, God. We pray all of this in Christ's name.